Hello and welcome to Haaretz Weekly. I'm Allison Kaplan-Summer here in our Tel Aviv studio. Traditionally, Israel, like other democracies around the world, has looked to the United States as an example of getting it right. That example to the world suffered tremendously during the era of former President Donald Trump. Norms, laws, the basic building blocks of democracy were challenged and weakened, sometimes to the breaking point. A true low point in that process is now on display as the hearings for the U.S. House Select Committee to investigate the January 6th attack on the United States Capitol are underway. That committee investigates the lead-up to the violent insurrections by a mob intent on preventing the certification of the 2020 elections and the role of former President Trump in it. Our guest on the podcast is here to talk about Steve Bannon, a key player in the movement and norm-destroying mindset that led to January 6th. Jennifer Sr. is a journalist for The Atlantic, and she took a deep dive into Steve Bannon's world and published a remarkable piece called Steve Bannon is a Lit Bomb in the Mouth of Democracy. Before The Atlantic, Jennifer wrote for The New York Times and New York Magazine. She's the author of a book, All Joy and No Fun, The Paradox of Modern Parenthood. She has won many journalism prizes, one that deserves to be singled out right now, the 2022 Pulitzer Prize for her story, Grief and Conspiracy, 20 Years After 9-11. Welcome to Haaretz and congratulations on the Pulitzer, Jennifer. Thank you so much, Allison. How you doing? For listeners who have been living under a rock for the past seven years, right? <laughs> Steve Bannon okay. is former investment banker, former head of Breitbart News, which he famously bragged was a platform for the alt-right, which is kind of like the nickname for far-right white nationalism driven by online activism, rejecting mainstream politics. Bannon briefly ran former President Trump's presidential campaign in 2016. He was the White House's chief strategist in Trump's White House during the the first seven months of Trump's term, a whole seven months, um, left pretty quickly, uh, returned to media and his own special form of activism, encouraging far-right populist movements around the world, dabbling in political strategy, not super successfully. And then in August 2020, he was arrested and charged with conspiracy to commit mail fraud and money laundering in connection with the anti-immigrant We Build the Wall campaign. He pleaded not guilty. He was pardoned by Trump before his trial started. And more recently... Bannon was subpoenaed to testify to the January 6th committee, but he refused, was held in contempt of Congress, indicted and charged, lost his appeal, and he's due to stand trial in July. That's basically uh, his story up until this point, right, uh, Jennifer? That, that's quite a remarkable recapitulation of his TV, or the lowlights and some of the highlights. Um, well done. Please tell me you had that written down. <laughs> yes, that's all correct. So you might have you might have included the idea that he was actually arrested for we build the wall on a yacht, just because it's a delicious detail. But we can get back to that. Yes, all true. So you and Steve Bannon spent a lot of quality time together reporting this case. <laughs> As far as I can tell from uh, reading it, um, most of it, it seems, was spent in his podcast studio, or he would prefer to call it an online television show, right? The War Room. Uh, yeah, he would just call it a television show. He wouldn't use the word online. He, he bristles when you call it a podcast. But it's a podcast. So it is in the news right now because the clip of the January 6th committee's opening presentation starred him predicting on January 5th that on the next day, 
all hell is going to break loose. So let's listen just for a minute to Bannon's response to the opening presentation of the January 6th committee where he threatens Attorney General Merrick Garland. Uh, this clip is uh, is getting a lot of attention in the media and on Twitter at the moment. Trump won the presidency and he is the legitimate president of the United States and your guys illegitimate and the American people are awakening to that. And we don't care what you have to say. And I dare Merrick Garland to take that crap there last night and try to indict Donald J. Trump. We dare you because we will impeach. We're winning in November and we're going to impeach you and everybody around you. Be fuck, screw the White House. We're going to impeach you and everybody in DOJ. So is this typical of the kind of thing you were hearing from Bannon all of the weeks and months you were reporting the story? Did he step it up a notch or are people just paying attention to it now? Um, people were people had isolated that particular clip um, when they were writing about Bannon and his potential role in January 6th. Um, my colleague Bart Gelman wrote about it um, in The Atlantic in January. Um, I will just tell you that um, I didn't even mention it in this particular piece, only because he always talks like that, as you just said. Uh, to me, I, I, if you listen to the uh, four hours preceding it, I mean, he talked a lot that day. He added an extra hour. This is before he was regularly podcasting four hours a day. Um, I think he was only podcasting three at that time. Um he he seemed to be really talking about how legislatively it would probably be different. So I'm not trying in any way to apologize for him. It's just that there's a lot of machismo running through that show. There's a lot of, oh, it's going to be wild. It's going to be epic. Um, and he had been talking about the ways that there would just be legislative mayhem and that there would be kind of the equivalent of a legislative insurrection that day, which is what was supposed to unfold at a minimum without the violence. Um, so to me, it, I didn't actually think, and he was talking, by the way, about, you know, everyone man the phones, everyone call your congressman, everybody tweet aggressively at your congressman. I, I wasn't convinced that that was particularly um, reflective or dispositive of anything. To me, that was just standard um, war room kind of, you know, chest thump. So he refuses to testify for the committee, but it sounds like in the process of uh, reporting this piece, you kind of grilled him on exactly where he was and what he was doing on January 6th. So what did you come away with? There's evidence that he definitely spoke to Trump that day. Did you get a sense of what he told former President Trump? Did, did you get a sense that, you know, he's refusing to testify because he really has something to hide or this is just sort of a grandstanding, I support Trump move? Yeah, it's very hard to know with him. My sense throughout is that he'd like to be viewed as the center of attention. And so what he will do is almost for sport, try and, um, you know, build up his role. He, he's a megalomaniac. I mean, unambiguously, full stop. So he views himself as um, a, a pivotal figure. We know for a fact that he spoke to Trump before that gap in the, you know, seven and a half hour gap in the records, we know we spoke to him at the beginning of the day and at the end of the day. And weirdly, I do take him at his word that he was trying to explain to Trump, look, this is over. We don't have a legislative path now that this has happened. You know, we can decertify elections, but we can no longer send this back to the states. 
Not that they ever stood a chance, by the way. They never had enough votes to do that anyway. Uh, I, I mean, I or and I think what he it, what he said was, look, Pence never rejected the slate of electors, so that's that. He certified the election. This is done. Um, I, I do think he was working the phones all day. Who he was talking to, I don't know. He was definitely working the phones all day, and he was lying to me about it because initially he said, oh, I was downstairs watching the results in the war room. And his daughter, who was in fact downstairs with a number of other people who could corroborate that story, said, I never saw my dad. You know, my dad was mainly upstairs, you know, and I just went upstairs to say hi. And there are no conspicuous televisions upstairs on the floor that he was on. I think he was furiously working the phone. He told me he has five of them. I saw two of them. Um, you know, and he has others that are encrypted and various levels of encrypted. So he was doing something, but no, he wasn't going to tell me. I mean, he's been charged with contempt of Congress for this. So uh, it's safe to assume that he was working the phones, doing what? I'm not sure. And by the way, if I can just go back to my first answer, I didn't want to apologize for Steve Bannon there. Um, let me just be clear, just because that clip underwhelmed me where he said, you know, tomorrow's going to be wild. It's going to be crazy. Whatever it was that he specifically said. All hell will break um, loose. All hell. Yeah. Just because he said tomorrow, all I, I'm underwhelmed by him saying that all hell will break loose tomorrow doesn't mean that I don't think that he didn't indirectly play some kind of major role in organizing all of the energy behind January 6th or much of the energy behind January 6th. I think he really inflamed people. And in the run-up to January 6th, his show was key in getting people, getting people's blood up, right? He got people good and mad and convinced that the election had been stolen. He peddled, he, he trafficked in every single dumb conspiracy and trivial lie, things that were disproved and debunked over and over again. Um, so, but, but I mean, any slip of a grain of a molecule of a rumor, he would toss around, you know, about signatures not matching and, you know, machines not working. And I mean, and, and they all proved untrue. So essential question you ask in your piece is, does this very smart man really believe what he's saying, what he's selling? I mean, to put it bluntly, does he believe his own bullshit? Do you think he really thinks that Trump won the 2020 election in your interactions? Was there any kind of wink, wink going on? Or did you feel like he really sold you on the fact that he believed it? He didn't sell me on, no. But it's interesting, people who do this kind of thing, it's hard to keep two sets of books. You know, I, I got the sense that he was doing this for sport. What he would do is start by, as almost a game, he would embrace a point of view, almost like a debater had been given a, you know, a, a slate of points to argue. And then over time, as he was arguing it, he would gradually start to inhabit it and believe it. And I mean, you could almost wonder whether he told him he didn't believe it once, but has since convinced himself. Um, I think that's the way that most people, and most people can't tolerate co that kind of cognitive dissonance for very long. Here's what I thought was the most interesting is that in doing the reporting, speaking to people who like Steve, who are fans of Steve, who have affection for Steve, if you ask them whether he believed it, they'd say, I don't think so. I don't know. No, I doubt it. I mean, I was stunned by how many people said that to me. 
um, that he's too smart, and that really no one sort of inside the Beltway who understands how these things really work, who can do the math, who knows how, uh, you know, anyone who knows how elections really get tallied, who can look state for state, none of those people really believe this was stolen. And you saw this in that absolutely riveting hearing on Thursday night. And most of people who worked with Trump walked into his office, looked at him and said, it's over. We don't have the numbers. We can't get the ledgers to work out. And so that's what was most, like, you know, Ivanka didn't believe this, you know, and ultimately, you know, and I had someone very high level within the Trump administration saying to me, Trump didn't believe this. Trump knew it was over. And I tried to shoehorn this in. It seemed to be a bit of a distraction in my piece. But you had it there. You you saw it in the hearings. So given that, I mean, do we really think Steve Bannon believes this? So is it all about the money? Because you mentioned the dichotomy of his fondness for high living, the private jets, the fancy travel, fancy townhouses. And, you know, and at the same time, he's this, you know, anarchist wanting to burn it all down. I mean, it, it seems you ask if he's really some sort of grifter, you know, a con artist doing what he has to do to keep money flowing from the Mercers and these other conservative donors, because it's his job to keep that Republican hardcore base energized. And therefore, you know, this is what he's selling and this is what he's saying. Right. So I think there are a couple of things going on. First of all, um, sure, he he needs the money and this is a way to keep an opera a certain operation afloat you you sort of embrace what the furthest reaches of the right have to say and you become an outpost of disinformation and you keep the trump base alive and agitated that's it's a source of income it was also the source of a pardon right we had sam nunberg one of the earliest employees on the trump campaign saying it outright i mean that Steve Bannon was facing a potential future in orange pajamas. He was going to be, you know, he was indicted. He was, you know, uh, he was arrested. He was pulled off of Miles Kwok's boat for um, the We Build the Wall campaign. And um, for, for as you say, for mail fraud, for, um, for what was it, money laundering, for I can't even remember what the list of allegations were. And two of his co-defendants pleaded guilty. The third would have been found guilty, but for one juror who was hollering about uh, that the election was rigged and stolen. And I mean, he was this highly partisan juror, but there were 11 jurors who seemed to be convinced that this other guy was guilty too. The odds were good that he would have, you know, that he would have also been found guilty or he would have had to plead guilty. Um, He needed a pardon. So there was also that. So he owes him one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. You know, so Trump, you know, exactly. So Trump pardoned him. And in exchange, he peddled the big lie. He had a platform for it. The other thing is that what Bannon has always been very good at is finding wedge issues, knowing how to polarize people, knowing how to get the kind of headlines. And this is a way to just sustain a really toxic form of American discourse, to just continue to divide. It's just a way to prolong a really ugly form of discussion. And Can I just ask you how you got interested in Bannon in the in the first place? Was this an assignment from the Atlantic? I kind of had a little mental picture of a through line. Uh, your uh, piece on 9-11 was very moving, how you talked about how the father of a 9-11 victim kind of, you know, got sucked into this conspiracy theory world. And I kind of theorized that maybe you were interested in Bannon because you'd seen such a victim of these kind of conspiracies and you were interested in one of the people who was spinning them. But how did you come to the story? 
It's it, that's very insightful, and you're not wrong. Um, the editors were very keen that I turn my attention um, after two non-political stories. They were very interested that I actually find a political story to write, and they're so concerned about the demise of American democracy and how fragile it is right now, how precarious it is right now. And to me, it is all about epistemological warfare. And I am sure that I was unconsciously drawn to the kinds of people that were convincing people like the father in my story about the McElveins, right? You know, um, Bob McElveen Sr. The kinds of people who were sowing misinformation, disinformation, who who were responsible for changing minds and sowing doubt and persuading people. I, I'm interested in that. Like, how do you grab people and sell people a lie? And so in that way, I thought it's the Steve Bannons of the world, who to me are, are interesting and dangerous and consequential and asymmetrically so, by the way. You only have to convince a small sliver of the population that the election was stolen for it to be powerful and dangerous. Because uh, look, how many people did it take for there to be a breach of the Capitol, right? It wasn't that many people. They show up, they've, they've got their tear gas, they've got some kind of weapon, they've got, you know, handcuffs, they're, they're angry, they're, they're throwing punches, they're harming cops. Um, and you need just enough of them to breach a barrier and to storm a Capitol and to go into Nancy Pelosi's office. I mean, we don't know what would have happened if they'd found any lawmakers face to face, right? What if they had found Nancy Pelosi? What if they had found people? The cops, considering how outnumbered they were, did quite a good job without the reinforcements that they needed in protecting the members of Congress that they needed to protect. But I, the, uh, this to me is a question of asymmetrical warfare. Y you can inflame a very small percentage of the population and still present a danger. Right. That sort of seems like the central question, the central tension in your piece is whether Bannon is some sort of fringe, pathetic, weird loser who doesn't seem to be able to hang on to real power for that long. You know, seven months in the White House, um, uh, not doing a lot except for making kind of weird charts uh, on his wall. Or if, you know, as you say, leading this very small army of very dangerous people um, makes him, as your headline says, a lit bomb in the mouth of uh, of a democracy. Right. And why can't the answer be both? I mean, it's my fault in a way for um, presenting it as a dichotomy, because at the end of the piece, I say, who is he? Is he Lenin patiently biding his time in Zurich? Or is he some wretched Estonian emigre from a Le Carre novel waiting to die a lonely death and, you know, a London bedsit. But the answer could be both of those things. It can be, but right? I mean, he can be both at once a danger right now and ultimately not get very far, right? I mean, he can, he envisions himself as someone who will eventually be at the center of a worldwide populist movement. He's got this empty house next door to him that he hopes will be the center of many salons where people will be discussing populism and he will be leading this movement and there will be talks and lectures and discussions. He's got a new studio out in Arizona where he hopes to be broadcasting from because he thinks that Arizona is kind of one of the main seats of Trumpism, a place where they could bizarrely potentially decertify the 2020 election results. 
I don't know. Um, they're certainly making a big play for like having all kinds of Trumpists up and down the ticket on the state level. You look at those houses and you wonder whether they're a metaphor. They're just never going to be filled, right? They're just these sad, empty shells. And that Steve Bannon won't ever have another act. This is his final pivot. And his only clear message that I could perceive in your piece is burn it all down. Nothing about what he would build in its place, right? Well, that's kind of the essence of um, autocracies for you, right? I mean, they're content free. I mean, they're about power, but not much else, right? And yeah, ultimately to me, it's kind of a contentless message. Um, It's burn it all down. He doesn't have a vision for what comes next. His assumption is that some other generation will come in and rebuild. That's not at all clear to me. I mean, I, I don't know where he gets that or why he has such faith. And it's to me, not just irresponsible. It's, as I say repeatedly, very dangerous. He once, I I cut this quote, but he said, look, some people clear the fields and others settle the fields. Others are settlers. He just sees himself as a a field clearer. To me, that's just total horseshit. What does that mean? That means you're two years old, right? You're just blowing things up. Right. Well, chaos is never good for the Jews. And this being Haaretz and you being a Jewish woman, I'm very interested in how he responded when you asked him about the anti-Semitism that is rife in the alt-right. It's almost, you know, definitional of the alt-right from Breitbart to the MAGA movement to the comments in his current platform, The War Room. It is undeniable that Steve Bannon has a record of creating safe spaces for the worst kind of anti-Semites and his railing and the railing of his guests against the Rothschilds and George Soros aren't exactly subtle dog whistles. And he's got this picture of Jesus behind him when he broadcasts, right? And he hosts people like Marjorie Taylor Greene and Jack Posobiec who openly call on Christians to take their country back. So when you asked him about the anti-Semitism question, what did he say? So here's what was fascinating to me. He knew early on that I was Jewish and was therefore extremely awkward almost. I mean, he was clumsy in trying to bring up how much he loved the Jews. I mean, if you listen to my this one particular tape recording I have, at minute nine, at 1.30, right, 90 seconds in, and then maybe six minutes and 45 seconds later, he is saying enormously favorable things about Jews, right? Just because he's so, it, it's almost like that scene in Austin Powers, where Austin Powers sees a person with a mole and keeps accidentally saying the word mole out loud. Mm-hmm. You know, he's just staring at me and thinking Jew, Jew <laughs> right? So Jew, Jew, you know, and so, um, On the one hand, he was highly mindful of this. On the other hand, when I finally kind of came out and said this, he was very defensive um, and said, this is a very serious charge. You can't possibly, possibly say this. Um, But of course, he had to be careful because he knows that anti-Semitism is great for business, right? If you're a conspiracy theorist, the last thing you want to do is throw out the ultimate conspiracy, which is that Jews are behind everything, which, as you say, he's not very subtle about, right? The, um, Soros pulls the strings. Who is Macron? Oh, he's a Rothschilds banker. Rothschild. Oh, that's not code. You know, that's not code. I, he's a Rothschilds banker, right? Even you know, when he, he, even inside the White House, his, uh, his antagonists were, which he mentions, he names Larry Kudlow, Steve Mnuchin, Gary Cohn. 
Stallone, Jared oh, Kushner, yeah. who he doesn't dare to mention by name, but we know is his big rival, uh, along with uh, along with Ivanka. So even within Trump world, he's uh, he usually posits himself as being against those global elitists, aka the Jews. Absolutely. Oh yeah, and I mean, if you speak to reporters, I mean, there was nothing he loved more than leaking stuff about. Jared, right. So um, I think that th that's exactly right. And he says the others out loud on his show, or he deputizes Navarro to say them, you know, he'll, he'll find somebody else. The other thing that he will do is he will say, I'm not the problem. Your side is the problem. You know, it's the progressive left that can't stand Israel. You can't be a Jewish kid at UCLA and, um, and walk across a campus without catching grief. And look, I mean, there's some measure of truth to this, right? I mean, it's not that he's entirely wrong about that. It's just that it's a different kind of conversation. If, and he was trying to change the topic. If you want to talk about what the progressive left in the United States is doing vis-a-vis -vis Israel and BDS and the kind of anti-Zionism that's like, you know, taking root on college campuses, we can have that conversation. I'm not having that conversation with Steve Bannon because he, what he, he's trafficking in is something entirely separate. And it's, to me, it's, it's just as dangerous. And it's the kind that gets Jews chased out of their own countries and gets them killed and is responsible for, you know, you know, mass shootings and violence at synagogues. I mean, I'm very, very nervous. I think the kind of rhetoric that he, slings and that he deputizes other to sling is really scary. So I, I'm focused on that rhetoric with him. I think it's a separate conversation if you want to talk to the left. Did he mention Israel at all? Because his defenders, you know, Breitbart guys like Joel Pollack and uh, Aaron Klein, who uh, weirdly started out at Breitbart and then became Bibi Netanyahu's uh, campaign uh, manager in the last election, and uh, Zionist Organization of America's Mort Klein, they kind of, you know, when it comes to these Trumpy populists point to their support of the state of Israel as a defense against their uh, accusations of anti-Semitic uh, tropes in their rhetoric. Did he did he mention Israel? He, he all he did was say, "There's no bigger supporter of Israel than me." He sounded exactly like Trump, right? It was almost it probably was word for word the same line. And again, um, I think his motives are different. I think his ideas about why he supports Israel are different. And I, I, I'm i not interested in that. I'm interested in the fact that he keeps mentioning Soros and the globalists and the Rothschilds, right? And I'm interested in that and what that actually means for his listeners, because he or his guests would say this and, his, and uh, the commenters on Rumble, where I would watch the show if I watched it rather than listen to it, the anti-Semites would come out as if on cue and talk about the way that Jews pull the strings and that we are responsible for all the ills in the world. And we are, you know, it's replacement theory. It's all the dangerous things that get Jews in trouble and that we've been skated, scapegoated for for forever. And as you point out, those are barely dog whistles. Those are kind of just plain old whistles at this point. So, you know, what do you say to that? So yours was not a typical reporter-source relationship. I mean, you chose to open the piece with texts back and forth from, I mean, it, it really seemed like an ongoing, months-long interview. You can tell me the time frame. People say he's charming. Were you charmed? I, w I, he, I was not charmed. I was relieved to discover that he was easy to talk to. He's capable of code switching. He's 
spoken, he's been around liberals his whole life because he's part of the card carrying coastal elite, whether he wants to admit it or not. He went to Harvard Business School and the Georgetown School of Foreign Service, and he was spent a lot of time in Hollywood and he spent a lot of time at, or he spent some time at Goldman Sachs. So he knows how to speak in every kind of language. When he started lecturing me one day saying, you know, you know who hates illegal immigrants the most? Legal immigrants. He started to give me a big lecture and I cut him off and I said, Steve, I don't need you telling me that. When I was a kid, I watched the movie Lone Star by a very liberal filmmaker, John Sayles, who had an incredible scene about this tension between undocumented immigrants and the legal ones, right? The documented ones. And I started to launch into this kind of scene that I found really transformative watching it as a kid. And he cut me off and he said, don't you love John Sayles? Mate Juan, God, that movie. I absolutely love that movie. I mean, he can do it. He can totally speak, you know. So he's well-bred. He knows how to be charming. He knows how to be disarming. He's He knows how to be completely relaxed. But I also had been warned about all that. And he has a very sunny disposition. But I knew it was part of his shtick, right? So we both knew that the other knew. It was a few months long. In the middle, I had not one but two family funerals to go to. He had a family funeral that he weirdly invited me to go to of his own father. I had another cover story come out. So I, I had that in the middle and I had to kind of do publicity for that. I had my kids spring break. It wound up being a much longer kind of time frame than either of us had sort of planned on because of all the sort of funerals that went on and the, this other publication of my piece. But um, it wound up being much longer than I, than I expected that I had uh, spent time with him and wound up texting with him. But actually, I think it was fairly typical of a profiler and their, you know, his or her subject. You do spend a lot of time talking and you know, Steve Bannon likes to text a lot. That's what he does. So I, I don't see it as being that out of character. I think I might have been the first person who wrote about those texts, but that's preferred, you know, method. So after you did, you know, grow so close in a reporter source relationship, and then you wrote those very detailed, not super flattering descriptions of him, I have to close with the question of how did he respond to your article? So he texted me the morning of, you know, and claimed that he liked it, that it was, quote, badass, that he was fine, that Drudge hadn't brought it up as a as a liability for him, and Drudge hated him. And so, like, if it were, there were any real problem, he thinks it would, you know, he claimed that he thought the problems would be on my end, that from my side, I thought, okay, good, that's his stance to me, you know, and he wrote very nice texts all day to me, like, you know, how come you didn't get that dressed up when you went on, you know, to visit me in the war room because I was on TV. But meanwhile, his minions were busy tweeting negatively. And and by the way, and taking those clips and t turning them into unflattering shots, you know, of me, you know, it's a, a go-to move, classic go-to uh, move. Making the you? female yeah. reporter. Yeah, and making them look as ugly as possible, right? I was told that, that people, you know, adjacent to him were um, trying to make it seem like this piece was very good for him. I think there was an effort to try and get me deplatformed by the left, and no one was biting. No one was biting. All the media critics, all of the media professors, nobody was saying, how dare she platform Bannon? They really weren't. Like, there weren't very much of them, is my understanding, and they weren't very 
consequential to our world. That 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 died in a hurry. It wasn't getting any traction. And he has since stopped texting me, which, by the way, <laughs> is so fine. Yeah. It's so great. You know what I mean? Like it it was stressful. You've never you been know, so I, happy to be ghosted. Uh yeah. Yeah. So finally just looking ahead do you get the sense of if we see a Trump 2024 effort that Steve Bannon is going to be some kind of part of it from the inside that do you feel like Bannon still has Trump's ear? Do you feel like he's going to keep sort of this outsider insider thing going and and he would never really officially enter the campaign? So when I first began this piece, I was told that they had not spoken in about a year and I was told by a few people that that was true. Um, I think over time they started circling each other and there was more interfacing going on. There definitely seemed to be more indirect, if not quasi-direct kind of communication between them. I think he's enjoying himself in this role. He is fundamentally a media guy. This seems to be what he was born to do. He's really a creature of the media. He's not meant to be somebody else's employee. He didn't work out well when he was inside the White House. He has absolutely no diplomatic skills. And I think he's fundamentally solitary in his own way. You described him as a televangelist. And I thought that sort of hit, you know, well, you know, whatever. I think that's exactly it. I think that's what he does best, you know, and and I think to be in this sort of quasi independent outpost, but that's still linked. If you think about the kind of relationship that Fox News had, where like, Hannity and and Carlson were kind of texting regularly with Trump. He can be probably most effective exactly where he is. You can imagine him finding a way to sort of keep this bizarre equilibrium going. But in the meantime, I'd point out there are legal dangers. There are 49 other states besides New York that can kind of look at the role of we build the wall and decide that they want to go after him for wire fraud and whatever other charges. I mean, that pardon doesn't apply to individual states. So I just don't know legally where he's going to stand. You know, he's going to have to withstand a lot. And look, he's been very good so far at remaining one step ahead of everybody. But it's not totally clear to me that um, he's safe, right, in that particular way. But I don't see him as being a creature of any particular administration. I don't think that would work. Jennifer Sr., thank you for giving us so much of your time. Everyone go read um, this amazing article on Steve Bannon. Post Bannon, post Pulitzer, uh, we're looking forward to see what you have next ahead for you and for us. Thank you. Yes, I hope it won't be about, in fact, I know my next thing will not be about politics. It's (laughs) It's not the happiest place right now to live. My hat goes off to all of the people in the Washington press corps and the local and state sort of press corps who are looking at, you know, the ways that our democratic institutions are slowly losing their footing. It's really scary. It's hard. Well, we enjoyed your visit to the swamp for however (laughs) long it lasted. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you very much. Thanks, Allison. And that wraps things up for this edition of Haaretz Weekly. Many thanks to Jennifer Sr. and to my producer and editor, Shani Aviram. I'm Allison Kaplan-Sommer, and until next time, Shalom from Tel Aviv. Shalom from Tel Aviv.